why do we have to be conscious of psychological issues when consulting people with diabetes? And how does that link to person-centred care practice? Hi everyone, and welcome to the ADEA podcast mini-series on person-centred care, sponsored by the National Diabetes Services Scheme, an initiative that the Australian Government administered with the assistance of Diabetes Australia. My name is Jan Orford, a long-term ADEA member, and I will be your host. Today, we will be discussing psychological issues and how they impact on people with diabetes and their health outcomes. We will also talk about how these issues impact in person-centred care practice. Joining me today is a long-time colleague for many of us, Anne Morris, the Jan Baldwin National CDE of the Year in 2016. Thank you for joining us today, Anne. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jan. It's a very important topic and it's one that's close to my heart. Great. Well, I look forward to hearing your answers. We, as you know, we've got a few questions that I'll be posing to you today. Um, so we might get started if that's all right. What are some of the barriers to people with diabetes not actively managing their condition? Well, it, it is such an important way to place to start because uh, there are several. And it, it isn't just about the fact that they don't want to control their diabetes or actively manage their diabetes. It's got actually nothing to do with it. There are often many issues that are unseen and invisible if you don't start to be more aware of those and you don't look for them. And, and some of these things can be as simple as device use or um, poor engagement. Well, it's actually not quite simple, but, uh, you know, maybe poor engagement with the healthcare professional team around them. And that can be uh, any part of that team. It doesn't have to be one specific person, but that can make such a difference. But it's more, it's more, um, important to identify some of the, 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 the major issues and these include mental health and the importance of having well-managed mental health if it exists in a formal diagnosis. It also is important to acknowledge things like, you know, is it the cost of attending a service? Do they live too far away from a specialised service? It may be the tyranny of distance. Uh, if we also think then about things that include Depression, it may be that the person has a, a depressive illness that isn't well managed and these, these particularly can be a, a massive barrier to people self-managing actively. It might be the language that the healthcare professional is using and this is seen as a judgmental thing. It may be a judgment in itself in terms of the type of language that's being used and this gives the person a perception that they're being judged and that it's their fault and then they feel guilty and they have a sense of massive failure around this whole area uh, in terms of how that's being conveyed. And this becomes an, an additional barrier to why people don't actively manage. But it may also be something that we're just about to also talk about in this podcast, and that is diabetes distress or diabetes burnout. And we know a lot now about the fact that if these two areas are not acknowledged and identified and then and then supported in the way we move that person forward, then they in themselves can become a part of a mental health condition and can increase the propensity to develop depression. And so they're very important. It's a very important area to talk about and acknowledge. 
Thanks, Anne. You've mentioned both diabetes, distress and depression. So I guess what I'd like to ask you is two things. One is, what is diabetes distress and how does it d differ from depression? Diabetes distress is a measurable part of living with a relentless condition like diabetes and it's how that person is reacting to living with that with their diabetes and some of the issues and, and areas of concern for them. And there are a couple of ways of measuring diabetes distress. There is a, a, a scale called the PAID scale, P-A-I-D. It's called the Problem Areas in Diabetes Scale. It's a validated tool. It's been around for a long time and I use it routinely in my practice, but I also use it if, I've, if I'm uncertain. In addition to routine use on an annual basis, I use it if I'm, if I'm uncertain about what might be going on for this person. Um, and it looks at a whole variety of questions and areas that need to be addressed and that the, the person may have areas of concern with. And it's scored from not a problem at all to a to seriously a problem and when you look at it you can actually score this and then you add up all the scores and you get a score out of you add up the, uh, sorry you total all the scores and you multiply it by 1.25 that gives you a score out of 100 now if the score is in the high 30s or greater than 40 that identifies something called severe diabetes related distress and it's about how the that the impact of living with diabetes is on that person and very often the last question is do you, you know how do you feel about diabetes burnout? Do you feel burnt out by living with diabetes? And very often that question is high score. And so there's, there's a close association with having diabetes distress and also having diabetes self-care fatigue or diabetes burnout. And there's a lot of importance in how you can actually move people forward and normalise diabetes distress um, when you identify it and you start to talk about it. Depression is a uh, is diagnosed in a different way. It requires a, a specific assessment uh, through using a, a, there are a variety of scales and scores that can be assessments that can be used to assess the depression. But it may be that the person is not sleeping well. They do have a low mood and there may be clear clinical indications that the person has a medical condition on top of what may also be diabetes-related distress and the two are quite different and they should be treated the same. There's obviously a difference between the two. Can you just tell me, for the members, how does diabetes distress impact on people with diabetes in terms of how they manage their diabetes or behave? Uh, I, think, I think one of the most obvious will be that they suddenly are not actively managing their condition. They, are, they have basically stopped. They may, they may not be... It may not be as obvious as not giving insulin, for instance, but it may also be that they are something much more straightforward. So they might be not testing, for instance. They might be um, not attending appointments. They might not be engaged with the healthcare team. They may not be getting their pathology done. Uh, and after several sessions, you may feel that you're not getting anywhere in terms of, even though there may be effort gone, uh, where, where, you know, explanation about the importance of, active self-care is, is discussed with the person, they're still not moving forward and they may show signs of anxiety and, 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 and suggest that there may be a sense of failure. And these things can suddenly start to come up and to me, they'll come up and sort of highlight to me that there may be a deeper issue uh, in terms of 
you know, where this needs to go. And so when you do a paid scale, it gives clarity around the issues and the and highlights and demonstrates the barriers that that person in particular is feeling. And I think one of the things about impacting on people with diabetes and stress is you may pick that up in the very first contact you have with that person on the day. So, for instance, you may find that you, a person walks into your room, you've seen them before, and you say, how are you feeling? And they say, oh, you know, I'm not feeling very good or I'm not, things aren't going that well and it may be a, a bit of a throwaway line. But if you pursue it and you try and get in underneath about what's going on, um, then you may well start to open up some opportunity for that person to talk about some of the barriers that they may be they may be experiencing. And they may not be diabetes-related barriers either. We didn't talk about that earlier, but there may be personal barriers, there may be personal stress, there may be emotional distresses that are also impacting on that person's capacity to self-care. And so when we, when we start to, when we, when we highlight diabetes-related distress, we actually then should turn around and normalise how important this is to identify and how active a barrier that can be and start to get that person back on track. The impact on people with diabetes is varied and it isn't always obvious. But if we, if we are person-centred in our consultation with that person, then we will start to open up the conversation into a different area that, they, they can, that allows them to come back to you with what is really going on for them. I think that probably leads me quite nicely, Anne, into what we're all about here in this podcast is how do we, for, for health professionals to embrace person-centred care, can you suggest some tips and techniques for diabetes educators to use during consultations? I mean, you've posed some thoughts there around how they um, detect that there's something not quite right, for example. So how do you draw that out, particularly if you've only met somebody for the first time? I think that's a great question. And, and um, it, is, it is difficult when you're still trying to develop what becomes a very long-standing relationship for many of us. I'm particularly lucky. I work in a small regional city and I've known a lot of people who I see for a very long time and it does make a massive difference in how you start to engage with people and, and how quickly you can get to um, any issues that may lie underneath. So I'm very lucky in that regard. But when you don't know somebody, I think if, you take the, if, if, if our colleagues take the approach that it's about the person that's sitting there, not about what I want to do today. I might have things that I want to talk to that person about and it may be specifically related to improving their knowledge in, in, in regard to their own, uh, any p other clinical issues that may have arisen. But if I don't start with them and I don't get their issues off the table that they might want to talk to me about first, then I haven't actually been person-centred. And so I don't use a paid scale every time I see somebody. That's an annual thing for me unless I feel I should do it quicker. There is also another scale called the diabetes distress scale. And you can use either one to get the same outcome in terms of diagnosis for distress. Um, but it's, it, it's a great question about how we actually talk. Sometimes we might, as colleagues, we might have colleagues who want to talk more, be more person-centred with their person in front of them. But the, the organisational culture or the centre, the diabetes centre culture, is more focused on getting some ticks in the boxes on the left-hand side of the page. And it isn't, and they're important, 
but in le- but but we can often give people a sense of not being valued if we don't give them their chance first. So I actually start a conversation by saying, "How are you? How are you going? How have you been? How are things in the family?" We talk about non-diabetes things. And we talk about, you know, what's going on for them, where have they been, have they been on any holidays, have they done this, have they done that. So you're not starting off with your HB1C 7.2 and it should be better. And I think we have to also be very careful not to override our desire for, for passing on information with where, they're, with where they're thinking is at and where they're at at the time. And it's very hard. It's a tricky it's a tricky balance, really. I'm lucky. I work in my own practice, and I'm fortunate that I can actually have my own culture, which is pa- absolutely patently important to me, um, and one I've lived with for, for most of my diabetes educator career. Uh, and I can practice the way I want to, but I'm not sure all our colleagues are that fortunate. And so, one of the things that I think is important for for people is to t- professionals, our, our colleagues, is to look at their centre, review how they sit and whether or not they should think about the toolkit that may be at the end of the that may be the end of the podcast question but i, I do think it's important that we ask centers to evaluate their own level of person centeredness and what's missing and start to take stock of how that goes and if we if we as individuals want to move it in that direction then we have to also bring the rest of our team with us thanks Anne. you're a woman after my own heart <laughs> seeing them as a person beyond the diabetes. Uh, you mentioned the toolkit, and I'm assuming you're referring to the person-centred care toolkit. And I wondered if you could tell us what, what it is exactly and how we can use it in our practice. And the toolkit is um, has been developed by ADA, um, and there have, the ADA have been running some workshops, and I know many some of our colleagues have been to those. Um, and I. I get from the evaluation how important they've been. And I think um, the toolkit is a series of questions looking at a whole lot of different measures in terms of how that centre, it's it's, uh, filled out, completed by the person with diabetes. And uh, there are two, actually. There's a health professional one and you can assess your centre and then there's the person with diabetes um, version. And it's just the phrasing of the question, really. It's still looking at the same areas. Um, but these questions identify areas that may be less person-centred in some areas than others and it's about how the engagement during the consultation is primarily and so it, it looks at a raft of areas which include, you know, how it was, 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 did the person, you know, did the, did the professional, the, the patient or the person with diabetes is saying or asking themselves the question. Did that experience, was that experience person-centred to me? Did they want to hear what I had to say? Were they listening to what I wanted to talk about? And they're they're such simple things. But I think that we've we've lost that opportunity to talk to people the way we would want to be talked to ourselves and spoken to ourselves. If we put ourselves in that other chair, how would we like someone to talk to us? And so that's basically pretty much how the person-centred toolkit has been developed. And it is available, and I believe the website's just about, the person-centred toolkit website's just about to be updated. Um, um, I'm sure we can um, ascertain that pretty quickly, but last week when I was in Melbourne, they were talking about it being updated and available very soon. So the, the, the questions will be available online. And I'm sure they are, actually, if you look at the website, I have to say I haven't looked on the line online to find them. 
but um, the toolkit can then be used to assess how person-centred either the centre is or the consultation was and then you can look at areas that may well become more person-centred if you evaluate how those questionnaires were answered. And so the toolkit is a starting point. But just filling out the questionnaire and completing it doesn't make you person-centred, but it's a, pretty, it's a pretty good place to start in terms of evaluating where you sit, both as a professional individual and as a centre that offers diabetes education services. Great. Thanks for that, Anne. And just in answer to your question, yes, the toolkit, as I understand, is going to be put up on the site um, linked to the podcast details. So people will be able to access the questionnaires oh. and things. Oh, that's great. Now, the other, I guess we've touched on several aspects of this next question, but the whole concept of person-centred care has been around for a while. And I wonder if you could explain why do we need to be person-centred in terms of our focus in our consultations? Well, I think, and you're right, it has been around for quite a while. And I think if we'd asked each other this question 40 years ago, or 35 years ago, we would have wondered why on earth we were asking this question. And I, I do think there's a couple of areas. I, I think that we need to make sure that one of the reasons why we're, we're having this conversation perhaps is that there has been a loss of the art. There's a loss of the art and I think that that has diluted then what should take place in a consultation. It's become more clinically focused. It's become less conversational and... Um, I think that also because we are, this is not a, this is not directly a criticism against the, the different disciplines, but each discipline within a team has its own has its own communication skill set, if you like. And I think when you start to blend a lot of disciplines, you start to blend some of that conversation and that language into a, a generic conversation. And so one of the things that I think is important is making sure that all the disciplines who can come in under the diabetes education banner inherit or understand the importance of incorporating this sort of language into the everyday consultations and conversations with people with diabetes. I don't think they do it with, the great, with, with uh, an awareness. And so I think one of the good things about this is that it raises the awareness and it puts it back up there. And I think the other thing that, that needs to make sure ha we, have, we do and make sure it happens is that in the courses for diabetes education, but they are person-centred because some of them are not. And then I think the other part we need to talk about then is making sure that when people are presenting data, that we actually make sure that we talk about people with diabetes in a sensitive way. And when we start to do that, we start to actually then generically incorporate the style of language that helps to make people with diabetes feel, feel valued after all, if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have jobs. So it's starting to make the person with diabetes feel valued. I must say, I'm not sure I'm answering the question very well, but I must say that I've, I read some people with diabetes, I read their blogs and they put their blogs up on social media and all the rest of it. And I am still very unhappy about some of the things I hear from our colleagues in terms of how consultations go. So we have still a lot of important work to do in making sure that people with diabetes get the sort of consultation they deserve. And I, 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 when I was talking at these workshops last week, I talked about the reason why it's important to make the, the best use of that time. 
And while we must be person-centred in that time, is so that the person feels valued at the end of it. But they're living with diabetes for eight, what is it, 8,740 hours a year and they come into our lives for 25, 30 minutes to an hour, four, three to four times a year, four times a year if they're lucky. And I, I, also, I also put out there this number, one, two, one. And I won't take the time to let you work out what that means. But I heard this at an Australian Pediatric Society meeting a few years ago, said by a pediatric endocrinologist from America. 121 is the average number of decisions that a person with type 1 can make about their condition every day. So if we, and they won't all make 121 decisions, but some do. But even if they make a fraction of that, even if it's 50, it's still already layering a lot on top of a lot of other life decisions that they make about other parts of their life every day. So when we, when we come into their lives, we need to make sure that we're not adding burden unless we can help it. We need to make sure that we maximise that opportunity. And being person-centred means that we, we will tune in to the littlest of things and make sure we address it to, to ensure that, to ensure that you know, we, we, we don't miss those things because then that person will feel so valued and they will then also make sure that, that they will come back because that's what we want, isn't it? We want them to come back. You're absolutely right. We're talking about the art of diabetes education, I think. And I wanted to finally ask you if you could give us some ideas as to how we can help a person with diabetes who experiences discrimination in this scenario. Oh, that, that, is, that is very hard because maybe that person doesn't have choice around where they can go to access services. So it may be, in fact, that they are locked into accessing this service all the time. I think that, that, that one of the, the ways that, that can be perhaps considered for that person is to, uh, well, if they're getting an opportunity to feedback, I would certainly feedback in some way about, about how that went for them. I would also say to the person with diabetes that they have every opportunity to actually take control of that conversation and say, I'm, and and, and it, it may be very hard is the problem and they may feel that they can't do it and they're trapped. And I'm sorry if that's the case. You know, not everybody has three or four choices for healthcare providers in their, in their area and in the town that they live. So that would be disappointing. So I think that there's a per, an opportunity for that person to say, look, I, I know you've got some things that you want to talk about, but I've got some things I need to talk to you about. And, and, you know, try and take some control. It seems unfair that they have to do that, but maybe the person will will say, I know you've got things to talk about, but I need to talk about some things. I've got some a list of questions here and I need to talk to them about. And if the person is tuned in, hopefully, fingers crossed, they will say, oh, great, what sort of things do you want to know? And hopefully that will happen. And you and I would both say that shouldn't happen because that should never be an, a, a scenario that arises if the consultation is person-centred. So it is very difficult. And I, I also think, of course, that people will then go off and doctor shop. And I know there are people who are living in Western Victoria, which is where I come from. They will, they will for whatever their own reasons are, or they're living much further afield, and we have people coming in from South Australia because they can't get service access, um, they will go to Geelong or they will go to Melbourne or they will access alternative services because and travel the distance 
in order to get somebody who fits their needs and meets their needs in terms of their diabetes care. Yeah, yeah, and I think the whole issue, I think, you know, listening to you talk today, I mean, as you know, we've been around for a long time and, and I, I we've heard this conversation so many times and I hope that people do hear. I know time's precious, but a person with diabetes is precious too. So thanks for that, Anne. We've covered a, a lot of information and I wanted to thank you very much on behalf of the members for your support in, in doing this. But last and by no means least, I wonder what your take-home message for our listeners is from today's discussion. Look, I, I thank you, Jan. It's been a real pleasure to, to do this with you, especially as we've been such um, close colleagues for a long time. Um, I, I, do, I do think the take-home message is to, re to do some reflection on your style of consultation with people with diabetes. Reflect about whether or not you're incorporating some form of judgment into your assessment of what's going on for that person. If you're thinking that the person with diabetes is sitting there not having tested with an HbA1c of 8.8 .8 or 9.2 because they're happy with that, then review the way you've thought that through. Think about what else you might be able to do for that person. And if you start to have a different style of consultation with that person with diabetes, and don't be frightened to do that. All you will do is to actually make that person realise that you've valued your time with them today and they will go away by and large feeling much more satisfied from the consultation because you have become more person-centred and because you've actually taken the time to ask them that question about how they're feeling, you will find that the whole raft of the whole content of your conversation and the direction of your conversation with those people will change because being more person-centred, completing paid scale forms is only part of it. In doing that, you are making yourself more person-centred and even thinking to do it, you've made yourself more person-centred. So don't think, try to evaluate your own position and reflect on how you perceive people with diabetes. Are they all bad or are they all good? And if you're using that language, look at the Diabetes Australia language statement apply it to your practice, and that in itself makes you more person-centred. Thanks again, Anne, for your time today and taking time out of your busy work day. We really appreciate that. Thank you, Jan. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I hope that people listening to the podcast find it informative and useful in how they change their practice. I wanted to say a big thank you to our listeners and members of ADEA and those health workers who have a special interest in diabetes, diabetes care and diabetes management. Don't forget there are another two podcasts on person-centred care and we urge you to link in to hear both of those as well as this is a really important aspect of our clinical practice which I think Anne has made very clear today. We look forward to talking to you all at our next podcast series coming soon. Thank you and goodbye.